Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am Michael Fling. I'm the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by someone I can now absolutely call an old friend, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I feel like you just doomed us to be like, in the future, I'll just be a disappointed drunk and you'll be a hot shot. I I don't know about that. I feel like higher probability that I am the drunk and you are are the hot shot. Or we need to find a third who becomes the hot shot and then you are continuing doing brilliant things, but like by yourself. Oh, maybe and I've wasted away. <laughs> no, well, maybe we'll just both be Charlie and we'll or have maybe... found a good balance of therapy yeah, right. <laughs> and having 11 children. But uh, apparently terrible with money or at least not yeah. as good with money as other people, I yeah. guess. And b- embarrassments on national television. Okay. So if that has not completely given away what show we're going to be diving into this episode, Annika, why don't you remind us of the clue about what show we'll be getting to know? So the clue I gave, I I think I gave more than one clue, but the main clue was that the trio at the heart of this show originally in its source material were named Richard, Julia, and Jonathan. Um, And they were a playwright, a novelist, and a painter. And they turned into, surprise, surprise, Franklin Shepard, Charlie Kringis, and Mary, what is Mary's Flynn, name? Flynn, Flynn, I Flynn, Mary Flynn. Yes, and of course, they are the trio at the heart of Merrily We Roll Along by George Firth and Stephen Sondheim. Um, lots more interesting stuff to come about that original uh, source material. That is the play Merrily We Roll Along by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart, um, which also went backwards. And I think the sort of like supplementary clue I gave was about a song in this show that uh, I feel like shares DNA with another major Sondheim song. Uh, That is Franklin Shepard, Inc., which is, in my opinion, a three-act play that shares the three acts specifically with the song Ladies Who Lunch, um, which is another George Firth show. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, in both cases, and I may or may not talk about this more later, But in both cases, they are a person who starts out thinking that they are in control of what they're about to say, ends up getting completely out of control because their emotions take over and take them to a place they didn't think they were going to, has a moment of reckoning when they realize that they are out of control and that they are saying something that is truer than they intended to say. And then it comes back to a place where they are sort of... uh, owning what they are saying in a more controlled way, but it is not the flip uh, place they were in the beginning. So they've gone through an emotional journey over the course of the song um, that is about sort of your ability to perform for other people. And then um, in the course of doing that, realize that you are exposing something to yourself you didn't realize. Um, so yeah, that's that's just something that I've always thought was kind of fascinating about those two songs that they they are very different in many many ways but i always thought that that was very interesting and so both tour de force uh songs for ultimately secondary characters that if merrily were to happen chronologically they'd also yeah. get the 11 o'clock numbers which is very interesting yeah definitely they both exactly in the like the exact same slot basically if merrily were told con- like in consecutive in consecutive uh order. i know it's such a funny 
thing, Merrily's Merrily structure, what that means for its structure as a musical. Yeah. That we have, and if you can't tell by that, we have so much to say about Merrily um, that uh, I even had a joke that now the timing is off. And I was going to say, I know Mary Flynn's uh, last last name because uh, if anyone wanted to bully me in high school, they probably could have just called me Mary Fling slash Mary Flynn, <laughs> which is a pretty lame joke. But I was like, eh, okay, um, might as well. But I think I think if a bully bullied you with that particular reference, I'd be they a would be bit revealing something about themselves. Something about themselves, and I'd be a little bit happy about it uh and that I'll, I'll say happy um okay so with that why don't we get and take it to the speed test where i do my best to summarize the plot of merrily we roll along in under a minute and i'm gonna be totally transparent here and say i did think a little bit about how i'm gonna get through this because <laughs> i i i i h it so hard she loves me that I was like this one's <laughs> gonna be really hard and I was like okay I need to at least a little bit think about this so I haven't done a ton of prep but like I, I for this segment but I at least have thought about it a little bit okay well I also will say I allow you if you would like to go do the thing that I do not a- approve of when people have tried to do it with this show which bl- blows my mind that people try to do this but if you want to do it for the speed test I think you are allowed to tell the story of the show in its reverse in, chronology in, so because and, i think it's kind of hard to jump back for the purposes of this exercise but you yeah, can well i i'm gonna try to do it in show order so we'll see okay all um, right we'll see. i'm gonna try all right uh let us dive in i feel like i should do all the years like 1975 you should that would be a good really good one good one all right or or even just all the random characters that no one really knows the name of, but we pretend are fully formed three-dimensional characters. <laughs> yes, that's true. Jerome. Right, exactly, right. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, I know what it's going to be, though. I, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, ready? Yep. Uh, Bobby, Jackie, Jack, go. Okay, so we start at a party um, in Hollywood at Franklin's house. Uh, where Mary is there, it is revealed that they are like old friends, but she's a bit of a drunk now. He's a very successful Hollywood producer um, with this like, you know, hotshot um, girlfriend who starred in his movie that was apparently bad. We flash back to then um, the dissolution of like a TV interview with him and his former writing partner, Charlie, where Charlie has a meltdown on TV. Then we flash back after that to a scene uh, where uh, they are like reunited after um, Franklin's been on a cruise and was like it just got divorced from his wife. Then we flash back to the actual moment of divorce with his wife. Uh, then it's an act break. <laughs> then we go um, to basically their youthful existence and the little review show that they all kind of like did together um, that his wife was in um, that uh, eventually became like, you know, their big it, it, we go backwards basically into their career but like a big hit broadway show that at first was a little review and yeah that's not quite it but there's well no that's really good so like so finish it up yeah so basically we like they have a big hit broadway show but the way they got that big hit broadway show was of a little small off-broadway review cabaret type thing um that we see a performance of um and then we go back from there and we also like see him get married to his wife, Beth, who was the star of that show. Um, and then we see them writing that show and in process and auditioning for that show. 
Um, and then we go back all the way to uh, the two guys who knew each other moving to New York and meeting Mary on the rooftop of their apartment building where Franklin's been playing piano all day. And she makes the connection that that's who she's been hearing play piano all day. And they watch um, Sputnik, Sputnik um, shoot across the sky and uh, talk about uh, what they want to do to change the world. Um, and... Oh, I may cry in this episode. This show gets me very emotional, as I know it gets a yeah. lot of people very emotional. Um, but that is basically, that is the reverse plot of Merrily We Roll Along. Yeah. Well done. That is a very good summary of a complicated show that has gotten more and less complicated over the course of its very complicated history. It sure has. So, Annika, let's use that to take us to Why God Why. Why God Why? today where we talk about what the show's big idea is what are the authors trying to say and what is the theme that's propelling the story forward so uh, i'm gonna be honest and say this show is so full of so many things and frankly has a lot of thematic overlap with a lot of um other sondheim titles i mean i think it, there are a few themes we've certainly we've certainly talked about community being something that he explores a lot in his um in his work, but this one has a lot to do with like, uh, I, I'm taking a, an opposite approach because I don't know that there's one thing that unites all of the characters or at least not something that kind of ready to the top of, bubble to the top of my mind. But I do think that this is really a, a, a meditation, how pretentious can I sound? A meditation on dreams and where did we go wrong? Like where, where was the choice? Where was the decision? Where was the moment where things kind of fell apart and we became jaded? and um and cynical about a lot of life um or about things that happen in it where where does that actually happen and i do, i don't know that the show answers where that happens i think that's like i don't think it gives a oh that's a definitive moment where where it all kind of comes tumbling down but i do think we see the slow erosion of of franklin's life uh, and his kind of um getting off the path that he once hoped to be on onto another path um, and so I think that's that's probably the the theme that's governing the entire thing. But Annika, for you, what what would you say that is its why? Well, this is a, such an interesting one because I feel like my answer to this question has changed. And um, and it was funny when I was doing research into the original play. Uh, I think there is a lot about the original play and also this original show where like the message is kind of simple that like to be successful means you sell out, you know, um, that success is kind of its own punishment in like a way. And, and that's not what I think this show is about actually now. Um, the thing that, that, and a credit to Maria Friedman, I didn't think this about this show until I saw her production. Um, if you had asked me before I saw her production, what I would have said this show was about was not something similar to that original thing about like, you know, the, the, the price of fame and the price of success and like the, the kind of like warning about how it can take you away from what's really important about life, which is friendship and people around you and like the emptiness of that world. Seeing Maria Friedman's production, um, which I saw for the first time when it was, filmed the British version, I thought, you know what? There's something about this show now to me that is, it is about partially 
as you said, all of these little, like, where did, where does these, where does this stuff happen? And what I was much more aware of in this production was all of the decisions made by the people around you that end up causing those things to happen to the, the sort of notion of a kind of collective responsibility for each other's lives that, you know, like the, like the thing that really stuck out to me was the moment when after the divorce, when Franklin is saying like, I just want to work, I just want to work. And both Charlie and Mary are like, no, no, no. Like, this is not the time to work, go on this cruise. And the cruise is where he ends up like really hooking up with Gussie and Gussie, which Gussie is a whole other thing that we should talk about too. But like, like those well-intentioned moments where Mary and Frank are saying, and Mary and Charlie are saying to Frank, like, no, 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 don't do that. Do this. This is better for you. And like, they are not making the wrong choice, but that is the choice that ends up putting Frank on a path towards what will splinter him away from them in the first place, you know? And like all of those little tiny moments that end up putting us on one path or the other. So basically now I feel like I've said a lot of words to say what you said, which is the sort of like the, the many tiny things and choices that are made over the course of a life to lead you two things both good and bad like i mean i you know i feel like now i should have my little no but it's it's interesting because you even brought up community as a part of that which i didn't and as we i i preambled saying i so many of his shows even though he's not the book writer and he wouldn't say that he's responsible for themes in the shows like the book writer would be responsible for that on some level like it is interesting that you that still plays into your your on the show and like because i i sit here and look at like the other the other things about like growing up and and personal responsibility but essentially that like it shares a lot of like young versus old mm-hmm. tension um which is something that runs through little night music that's something that runs through into the woods on a certain level that's something that runs through like you know i youthful optimism versus you yeah. know aged cynicism and or wisdom um, and the kind of tension, the the fundamental tension between those two things, that's something that's in company. That's something that, like, even if you wanted to get, like, super, super analytical about, like, forum exists in forum. Like, yeah. I, and maybe that's just something that exists in everything. <laughs> and, like, I'm, you know, boiling de- everything down to be super simplistic. But it is interesting that, like, you have a, a, a body of work from an individual that does have such thematic parallels that don't necessarily feel like they're the same show over and over and over again but are yeah. exploring similar things yeah and it's funny that this one and company are both written with george firth because i think that there's a lot i think there's a lot of overlap there including in the idea that i think both of those shows started with a more cynical heart um and ended up in a place that was a little bit more like humanist basically like because I feel like company also has that sort of interesting like push pull of like is it better to be with people like people are you know why why would you do that like when you look at the original version of being alive and it's kind of basically like all the things that you know annoy you about being with someone and then it's like that's happily ever after in hell like they both kind of I think there's a part of them that was like no people are like relationships are difficult and bad <laughs> and like right you know right. and it's like that's not 
it's not that simple ultimately. And like this show, I feel like is a little bit like you grow up and you get old and everything gets disappointing. And like, ultimately this show, I think has gotten better when it's gotten further away from the simplicity of that idea of like, right. The, the, the cynicism has ultimately grown to be balanced by a lot more interesting things. Let's use that to dive into Annika. Take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Merrily We Roll Along. We can never go back to before. So as I mentioned, Merrily We Roll Along, the musical, is based on a play also called Merrily We Roll Along that was written by the Titanic theater gods George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart and which premiered on Broadway in 1934. Um, and uh, kind of the flips, well, no, not really. I mean, this play was well-received when it premiered, but then was not successful. So it, it really hasn't um, lived on much beyond its its um, like place as having inspired this musical. Um, but it's a kind of a fascinating story into itself. So anyway, so Kaufman and Hart were a writing team who were responsible for some of the greatest comedies in the American theatrical history, uh, including most famously, You Can't Take It With You. Um, it really, like, honestly, like, they are both so massive. I was I was going to, like, attempt to do a little tiny summary of either one or both of them. And it's like, just, just read Act One, which Moss Hart wrote about theater. It's one of the best books about theater ever, like... They just, they're they are both amazing writers who just, yeah, they're great. If you don't know who they are, pause this and go look it up. Um, so they had worked together because George S. Kaufman had been writing with a lot of other people. Moss Hart was newer to the game. Um, once they had a play hit in 1930 called Once in a Lifetime. And Merrily Roll Along was their second foray together. But it was an idea that Kaufman had had. He had been traveling from Hollywood to New York in 1931, and he was struck with the inspiration to write about a family going through the first half of the 20th century and moving from youthful optimism and hope to heartbreak and dashed hopes uh, with the stock market crash of 1929 and the Depression. Um, but before he could write that idea, Noel Coward wrote a play called Cavalcade, which is about something similar. And so Kaufman really sort of shelved it. But then when he started working with Hart, he decided that there was something to that idea. But at that point, he had evolved it to be about an ambitious playwright. And he had the idea that the story would be told backwards. So it would start out with the you know, lack of optimism and the cynicism, fame and fortune having destroyed everything. Uh, and end with the youthful optimism. So they embarked on this play. It was not really a comedy, unlike their first one. Um, and uh, as I said in the clue, they the characters were slightly different. Uh, Franklin was a playwright, Richard Niles, which is the, probably the closest comp. Mary was Julia Glenn, a novelist. And I thought this was fascinating. Um, that character was based on Dorothy Parker, the great writer who was in the Algonquin Round Table with George S. Kaufman, which means that, not to get ahead of myself here, but so with Merrily, there's been some discussion about how Franklin and Charlie and Mary are sort of roughly inspired also by Sondheim and Hal Prince and Mary Rogers. Um, so what a character to have the roots in both Dorothy Parker and Mary Rogers. I mean, Wow. That is cool. And then uh, Charlie was Jonathan Crail, who was a painter. Um, and a lot of the things were very similar. Like like in Merrily, Franklin marries a glamorous, rich, like famous 
person who takes him away from his friends a little bit, um, which would become Gussie, the character we will probably discuss because I have many guessy thoughts. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the things overlapped. Um, anyway, so the play opened at the Music Box Theater, which is kind of funny because that is a very, very small theater. And the cast of the play was very big. Um, I've seen two different numbers. One of them is 55 people in the cast, and that is the smaller number. The larger number is 92. So I'm not really sure how many people were in this play, but a lot of people were in the play. Even the idea of 50 people being in a Broadway play, unreal, let alone I, 92. I mean, now in a day, these days, it's, you know, what is it, Jinx High School? That's a niche reference for anyone who's listening from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Shout out to my friends and family. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of follow-up questions on that notion, mostly about dressing rooms. Like, what do you just like? Oh, in those theaters? Where, where do people, people go? Where, where are they probably in the building? The, probably the basement. I guess. But like, it's not like you can like call people and be like, okay, 10 minutes to your call. Like, and then some just like theater, come from a Panera around the corner. Yeah. Some theater historian has to have the answer on that. Someone yeah. knows. Someone knows. I actually someone know knows. someone who probably does know. So I will, I will ask them. But yeah, there were a lot of people in the play. So <laughs> the short answer. And as I said, it got strong reviews, but ultimately flopped. Um, and there was this quote that I wanted to read that Vincent Canby wrote uh, much later when he was talking about Merrily We Roll Along in the, after the 1994 revival at the York um, that I thought I just wanted to add to this discussion. So he said um, he was talking about how the original play was uh, probably, you know, not a success. And he says, yet it's not only the Coffin and Hart narrative form that troubles the Sondheim first musical, it's also the play's depression sensibility. The notion that you can't get ahead without selling out is one that held particular appeal when the play was written. There was something both morally and politi politically suspect about worldly fortune at a time when, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt said in his 1937 inaugural address, one third of the no nation was ill-housed, ill-clad, and ill-nourished. So I thought that was kind of a fascinating thing to bring up basically that the play was written at a time when people wanted to see narratives about how richness like wealth is morally bankrupt because so few people were wealthy but it also made me think about like and and it's interesting that that was a something that like a story that uh Sondheim and Firth and Hal Prince were drawn to in the 80s too which is like you could write a whole college essay about that but um I think there's also something kind of interesting. It made me think when I was doing this research of the quote that is one of my favorite quotes of all time from Urinetown about um, what did you say? Like, what is Officer Lockstock at the end when he said, "You, what do you think, like, little Sally, you don't think people want to be told that their way of life is unsustainable? And I think about that so often in terms of, like, I mean, Vince Canby is probably not wrong, but also, like, what a depressing show to have in the, like, there's something about the thirties where you're like, maybe people just wanted something that was a little bit less like your youthful dreams will die. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, probably. Anyway. Yeah. So I, the, I will hand it over to you now and just say that this play occupies a very interesting place in history because it is almost, I think it's not published now or for a long time it wasn't published. It's really not very well known, even though Kaufman and Hart are, so um influential in theater and and most of their works have survived uh this one really hasn't so well yeah. and, and and we'll use that as a as a segue to putting it together bit by bit putting it together 
piece by piece. Only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So it's interesting you say that because what I find fascinating is like, while that is true now, at the time, like when um, Hal Prince's wife like has this idea to like, you should do a show about kids. And he remembered this play, Merrily We Roll Along, that like he was familiar with and Sondheim was also familiar with. So like there was a some kind of faction of people who did know what this play was, probably because Coffin and Hart were so prolific and so so huge. Now, not as much anymore outside of You Can't Take It With You. And so it's interesting to me because like I think it is harder to find copies of it, but I think it is still published because I think I stumbled upon a copy like in a thrift store in one of those like best plays of 1930 to 1931 or whatever like collections like they exi- it existed like in those kinds of collections i found i think being the hoarder that i am i think i found one of those like that in a thrift store somewhere probably in like high school or high school probably because i i was like oh merrily wrong that's a sondheim musical i should get this thing for a dollar and then i held on that book for a very long time and now who knows where it is, probably to some other, you know, theater-obsessed high school kid who maybe is listening to this podcast. Bless you. So for Merrily We Roll Along, this is like a 40-year development history. It's like never the same show twice, including in its initial production. Like in that initial like preview process, someone goes on the record and is like, yeah, it's like never the same show, not the same show twice, ever. Um, so I'm going to do my best to synthesize this down. Um, and as accurately as possible, again, as with many shows, there are conflicting accounts of many things, some great resources. If you want to know more about the development and history, um, I know we've mentioned it, but like Lonnie Price's, um, the best worst thing that happened documentary is really excellent. David Loud has a memoir. He was the original like Ted pianist and a, a very brilliant music director, um, arranger, supervisor, um, all around like brilliant mind and person, um, who wrote a memoir called facing the music where he details, um, extensively the, the Merrily process, including making um, a show out of his experience called Merrily Chapters that's currently in development that I happen to have seen and really love. Shout out. Um, hope something happens with that. Maybe something will. Can't really speak on that definitively. And of course, Sondheim's Finishing the Hat and Prince's Synthification. Like there are lots of books that talk about this. So many, many, many resources. And I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting. It might even appear in like Knotson's Carry as like a notorious flop or like a second act trouble situation. Um, I didn't consult those for this, but like it's one of those that would appear in those books. Um, so the idea is born out of Judy Prince suggesting that Prince and Sondheim do something about kids. Um, Prince recalled the play Merrily We Roll Along by Coffin and Hart, which he liked, as did Sondheim. They read it. They were really attracted to the the backwards timeline of it, the concept. They thought it was like going to be, you know, great. Sondheim says he's attracted to the friendship and the disillusions kind of of growing up um, and kind of that it was a microcosm of everything that happens to people as they get older and age. Prince um, feels the show is about youthful optimism and um, the meaning of the show is changed by having young people play the roles with kind of his whole thing. He's like, we're going to have young people do this. Um, so it's like a cautionary tale. So they do an early reading of the show and they bring on George Firth, who had worked with them on company. They do an early reading of the show and they kind of hand select a group of young actors, which include Lonnie Price, um, who I just mentioned made the documentary, um, as well as Jason Alexander of Seinfeld fame and um, musical theater um, original musical theater Broadway guy who has now gone on to great success in television and film. 
Um, and, uh, and also in this reading was James Weisenbach, who was the original Frank. He, um, there's more about him later. Um, but after this reading, like, you know, a number of the cast, they were like, oh yeah, we're totally solid on these people, James and Lonnie included, as well as Jason Alexander. They're like, oh yeah, 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 I'm done. And they really felt like their concept of having the show played by kids was saving the show. Um, and sometimes quoted as saying, um, by scene four, you forget that they're kids. Uh, and yeah, well, leave that quote there. We'll discuss that later. Um, but so they do open calls for young performers. They like put out ads everywhere and they get a ton of hungry, young musical theater nerd kids essentially to come out and audition for the show. Um, and so they do. It's a quite rigorous process. Um, and by the time they actually cast the show, um, sometimes like, yeah, actually, I need like way more time to write this. Um, so they delay the start of rehearsal by nine months. Um, so all these like, you know, kids are put on hold for nine months. Essentially, they turn down other jobs. Um, Lonnie Price has a funny story in the documentary talking about like he didn't even want he didn't cross the street even like without with it being a red light because he was so concerned about being like being hit by a car and dying because all these kids like their dreams had been made. They had been cast in the next Prince and Sondheim musical. Um, so once rehearsals get underway, it's pretty tense from the get-go. Um, David Loud, who I mentioned, um, describes um, having extensive staging sessions with Ron Field, who's the choreographer, where they would stage all these transitions very intricately and all this dance. And Ron and his assistant were like really kind of nasty to all the kids who were not, you know, the most trained professionals in a lot of cases, especially with dance. Um, and then they'd show like what they'd done to Prince and uh, there'd be a little conference and then suddenly they'd like start all over with staging uh, whatever transition they were working on. So that's just kind of a, a small like a uh, small embodiment, it seems, of the process. Um, and to that end, Franklin Shepard Inc., which is now like one of the most celebrated songs in the score, was um, wasn't even written by the time they started rehearsals. Um, and it didn't exist until the end of the third week, which for anyone who knows that song and how many words it is, I think kept Lonnie Price um, and David. Uh, who is his understudy up like, you know, for weeks on end because they had to memorize all these words. Um, and so during rehearsals, as they're like nearing the time, the end of their time in the rehearsal studio, they have like lots of um, I'm going to say like, you know, well, lots of like famous directors and choreographers like come in and watch the show. They're rehearsing at 890 Broadway, which we've talked about on the show before, uh, which is like Michael Bennett's rehearsal studio. Um, so Michael Bennett comes to a rehearsal. Uh, they don't really know what he thought, but he just looked confused. Uh, actors don't really know what he thought, but he looked confused. Um, George Abbott comes to a run through again, like uh, after George Abbott comes to a run through, like a lot of changes go in the next day. So it really seems like pretty actively they're trying to figure out this show in rehearsal. Uh, and one of the things they figure out very close there at the end of their time in the studio was that um, the actors are getting lost in their costumes. Prince like can't actually, it looks like they're wearing costumes, it's just not working. Um, and so he decide he makes the bold decision to cut it all and put them in sweatshirts with their um, their role names on them. So not even in all cases, like their role names. It was like the best friend, uh, the yes man, like all those kinds of like monikers um, that are like, you know, ironed on to these um, sweatshirts. It, it absolutely looks like something that I could craft at Michael's. And by Michael's, I mean the craft store, not my apartment, though that is probably where that crafting would happen. Um, so previews, <laughs> they go through tech. Um, there are, you know, lots of stories about the mess of tech and as any tech process is. And previews um, go uh, pretty, pretty horribly. Um, they end up 
uh, firing uh, Weisenbach and replacing him with Jim Walton, who was already in the company. Um, and they are really, really actively working on the show. So Sondheim described it as like as close to a Mickey and Judy movie as he ever actually experienced, um, even though they were not out of town and not in a barn. They were in the Alvin Theater in New York. Um, but it was like the most fun he ever had. And Prince echoes that account. Um, so but that said, it's obviously a very intense time. Uh, and uh, Ron Field, the choreographer, throws a temper tantrum of sorts in the theater prince kicks him out of the theater and fires him and replaces him with larry fuller who he had worked with on like evita and on the 20th century um so we've got like massive creative team changes um and the rewrites and cuts are just like extensive so um tons of side characters are trimmed down to their essence and the story is really focused on frank charlie and mary that's like the mission of previews is to focus on the three of them. Uh, and as, as I said, the cast is all like, they rarely perform at the same show twice. Um, and everyone, you know, to a person felt like the show was getting better. Um, Sondheim and Prince in hindsight say that they made the show better, but not perfect. They didn't solve it. They made steps forward, but didn't quite ever really get there. Um, and so, but like, you know, the cast is kind of willfully ignorant to that. And, um, you know, they there are lots of stories of the curtain coming up, you know, on act one and the, sh the auditorium is full, um, them singing to the backs of people's heads as they leave entire rows, just like leaving the theater. Um, and sometimes where like the curtain would rise on act two and this house that had been full would be half empty, uh, which has to be, you know, demoralizing. And a lot of them talk about that, particularly in the documentary um, that um, Lottie Price made. It's 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 hard to watch because you have a bunch of kids who are living their dream thinking they're about to be in the next big Broadway thing. And it is just not. So, yeah. So of course it's a big old flop um, and it gets pretty universally terrible reviews. And, uh, and there are, you know, again, there are lots of things attributed to that. I think it's all of those things are true. It is a, you know, kind of massive, massive uh, or everybody owns a little bit of it. Kind of every decision owns a bit of this. Um, so the, the main thing to know is the biggest substantive rewrite to the show um at least that is like documented as the most substantial rewrite is the 1985 production at Loa Hale Playhouse which happens after um you know Sondheim and Prince break up after this um not because they don't like each other just like you know we should probably go our separate ways um and have individual success their their careers are certainly not over um but Sondheim famously collaborates with James Lapine on Sunday the Park with George almost immediately after. And of course is a um, large um, artistic success. I don't know that we could call it a commercial success, but certainly um, like, you know, heralded now as one of the great Sondheim shows um, and their collaboration is, is born. So after that um, Lapine's like, you know, I'd actually really like to take a look at um merrily we roll along um out at la jolla and really like do some rewrites and and really work on it so they and i i didn't really go into this but like the show that we know now is merrily we roll along is really much closer to this 1985 version um uh, if you go back and listen to the original cast recording there are songs that you know songs that don't exist anymore lyrics that are changed i mean and a lot of that happens in this 85 rewrite so um rich and happy which was the original kind of opening number of sorts even though it started at the graduation that graduation scene is gone for 85 uh rich and happy is replaced with that frank um which um 
you know, and the casting, they cast older people. And so it's a little bit of a different, we're not like putting on Hollywood or imagining what Hollywood would be like. Like it is supposed to be a little bit more realistic as to what Hollywood is like. Um, and they add the song growing up uh, for Frank after um, in his apartment, after old friends. Um, so they can kind of get a glimpse into Frank's moral state. Cause one of the things that was attributed as a problem was that like Frank as our, you know, conceivable protagonist is basically awful and adulterous and all these terrible things and pompous and full of himself for the first, you know, like hour, half hour, hour of the show. So we got to get something in there that, um, that lets us like, like him or understand where he's coming from. Um, and, you know, they still continue to tinker with the show. Um, it's pretty universally agreed that this production is a great step forward. Um, but it's, you know, still in the intervening years is constantly tinkered with. Uh, everyone kind of does a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, some directorial point of view things and um, and some like actual changes. There are always it seems like, you know, between the arena stage, um, I think the York did an off Broadway production. Uh, it goes to London, is tinkered with again. It wins the Olivier for Best Musical. Um, so it starts to kind of get to the place where it's, um, you know, celebrated or at least not the um, the kind of horrible blemish that it was. Um, but it's really not until this last revival um, that it has fully stepped into its own. And that leads to what is now like the most popular <laughs> revival and or arguably production on Broadway, the triumphant Maria Friedman revival that um, had great success in the UK, um, as I mentioned, as and as a great, there's a great pro shot that I went and saw in theaters when it, you know, first came out and I'm sure is available. I'm pretty sure it's available on YouTube, actually, if you want to um, see what the British production um, of it was and a very, very strong pro shot. Um, but now uh, beginning at New York Theater Workshop with um, Jonathan Groff as uh, Franklin and Daniel Radcliffe as Charlie and Delincey Mendez as uh, as Mary uh, and is doing gangbusters business. So this, you know, arguably most famous flop of all time. I think it's fair to say if you were going to power rank famous flops, um, it has to I think it has to take the number one slot, not because it was, you know, like Carrie, which was, you know, an infamous flop. It was it was a flop that probably didn't need to be a flop or shouldn't have been at least on paper everything about it seemed to be a recipe for success and yet it was not um and so it really is having its um just desserts i guess in this revival in terms of selling out the hudson and doing gangbusters business and receiving you know pretty universal acclaim uh from from critics and audiences alike and uh it's, we pretty, it's a pretty seller and i i we I guess we can spend time talking about it now. I, I was, I saw it last month and was absolutely, I had obviously had seen the UK um, pro shot. So I, I knew at least the the point of view of the production, though it, that's also now like a decade old. So things have ebbed and flowed within it since then. Um, but I, I thought it was absolutely remarkable. And I, uh, at the risk of sounding like a Broadway pundit, I think it is um, the excellence and quality that should always be on Broadway everything should everything on broadway should be this excellent and this um you can have i have thoughts and feelings and it like critiques but it is um it is at a level of excellence that everything should be and i i think it's just a uh a, an absolutely wonderful wonderful production of of the show yeah i agree and we should also mention that uh merrily we roll along is 
becoming a film over the course of several years. Richard Linklater doing his thing with Marilyn Rolong. Um, and yeah. so we, shall, we shall see. We yeah. shall see in, in like 20 years with Ben yeah. Platt and uh, Ben Platt, Beanie Feldstein and uh, uh, what's his bucket? Paul, they had, uh, yeah, they replace it's Paul Mescal now, right? Yeah. And instead of whoever Blake Jenner, Blake Jenner, I can't ever remember. Yeah, um, that's that. Well, so I feel we'll, that feels right. So, um, so yeah, and so that will be interesting. My my thoughts and feelings about some of that casting aside, although I think Beanie is inspired casting as Mary, she'll be great. Yeah, I mean, and if full I, and complete confidence in Beanie Feldstein yeah. as Mary Flynn. <laughs> yeah, and we should say the concept there is that he's going to film those actors as they age, so they will be roughly the the ages of the characters as they grow older um so sure you know yeah like we'll see you know, we'll see what that is a couple like. weeks of shoot a couple weeks of shooting every few years i suppose yeah um, but it's what he did with boyhood and i think another movie he's done it with something else too right i think it's not just boyhood like there's another one but who knows because they probably you know they take decades to produce i, I i'm surprised anyone will sign on for that because like god forbid I know. Well, God forbid like, something happens to one of them, either literally or just like, oh, they, you know, who knows? Anyway. Well, yeah. Who knows? We shall see. Okay. So, Annika, with that, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside? Not a day goes by. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So, choosing a song from this show is very difficult. I mean, Sondheim does not make it easy. All of his songs in all of his shows are very full and complicated and uh, just masterpieces of emotion. And in this show, plot too. Um, But I wanted to do this one because it's a very emotional song and it is kind of deceptively simple, but it it really achieves uh, something that captures exactly what you need at this moment in the show and uh, amazingly captures what you need from another moment in the show where it serves two completely different functions. Um, So this is, again, just amazing, beautiful song. And it kind of interestingly fits in a triad of love songs, I think, of Sondheim's work, maybe more, but there are three that pop up to me. Um, which is this one and Every Day a Little Death from A Little Night Music, which talks about love as death. I mean, it's that same contrast and the idea that you go through your life and every single day uh, love will cause you the worst kind of pain, the end of your life. Um, And of course, uh, Losing My Mind in Follies, which captures the idea that every day you are living your life unable to stop thinking about someone that they are sort of haunting you and omnipresent even as you're doing completely mundane things so it's interesting that this is this is a well he draws from in in different ways in different shows i mean i think i don't love doing the sort of like art reflecting artist thing all the time but i think it's interesting that for sondheim it is this is a this is a true thing this is an easy um thing to to capture which is the the pain of love um and the complexity of love and the the way that love kind of gets into your brain and heart and 
can cause you real distress by just being something that you are constantly thinking about and and never really lets you go. It's messy and and it's kind of ugly and it's unpleasant as much as it's beautiful. So um, just a lovely thing. Okay, and also I should note too, this is kind of an interesting thing. And then I promise I'll get into the song. The way that Sondheim came up with the title for this song is from his true life, um, or rather the life of a good friend of his, who was having an affair with a man and um, at a certain point had to decide, there was an ultimatum, she had to choose between her husband and the lover, and she chose her husband. And so weeks after they had broken up, she got a call in the middle of the night and it was her lover who whispered to her, not a day goes by. And Sondheim had clocked that phrase as being so emotionally fraught um, and then used it here where it can function um, perfectly in this scene, which is after the courthouse. It's outside the courthouse when Frank is divorcing Beth, whom we haven't met yet in the show, but we know from the earlier scenes is his ex-wife, mother of his child. Um, and in the scene, they are you know, Frank asks her, do you still love me? And this is the answer to that. But there's a little bit of ambiguity in the scene because as much as we know that she's angry with him, she wants him to give up, um, she, there's a slight sense that uh, we, that she, that if he says he didn't sleep with Gussie, which she asks him a few times, that there might be a chance that they can get back together. So it's not really, the scene is not so clear that she's like out of there. Um so this song being the answer is kind of an interesting answer for a number of reasons. But then later in the show, we are going to encounter this song again, sung again by Beth, and it's going to be her wedding vows, which is just a real just knife in the gut when you hear it. And then also it's going to be Mary singing the song un unheard by anyone else in that moment as a kind of unrequited love song to Frank, whom she carries a torch for the entire show. So this one simple song serves three very distinct purposes. I mean, it is a song of heartbreak and anguish. It is a song of, of hopeful love. And it is a song of bittersweet, um, unrequited love. I mean, like that is crazy to think that's one thing can do three things so well. Um, okay. So as I said, this is in the courthouse, this is the outside. Um, and you might think that a song in this place, like this is the angry ex-wife, we don't, you know, this the show covers a lot of time. You might think that this song would be better spent being like an angry song from the wife talking about what Frank is like as a husband, because we haven't really gotten any of that yet, although we can kind of guess it from the first scene in which he is clearly a bad husband to Gussie. Um, but this is a very personal song from a character that this is really our first introduction to. And because it is... Um, it actually achieves even more than I think that other song would potentially, although I'm sure Sondheim would write something brilliant like that too. I mean, it doesn't really give us any plot uh, information about Frank or Beth really, but it gives us everything we need uh, about her and about, and really about him as well in this moment. So let us dive in. I'll stop talking, I promise. And this is the Encores recording with Betsy Wolf. I just, I just like this one. Not a day goes by, not a single day, 
But you're somewhere a part of my life And it looks like you'll stay So it starts so small, right? It's a very fraught emotional scene around this song. And this song just draws us in by being little and quiet and calm. It's not driven by extreme emotions. She's not saying any of this to hurt him. We know that this is her truth. And the melody here is sweet but sad. Um, so we could, like, in as I said, there's an ambiguity in the scene, and we're not 100% sure yet what she's going to say after this. She's saying not a day goes by that that he's not as part of her life. You know, that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. But uh, what we're getting is a sort of, like, haunting, right? There's this little, like, woodwind, maybe that's a flute, um, musically haunting the melody after not a day goes by and not a single day. It's kind of capturing... Frank haunting Beth and the idea that that's kind of a beautiful thing right they they she loves him he is always there in her mind a little bit but then we have this kind of melody pulled down after you're somehow a part of my life it doesn't feel like this is a really great thing it feels like it's a little bit defeated a little bit of a, a bittersweet acknowledgement of something and that of course is going to continue on as the days go by, I keep thinking, when does it end? Where's the day I'll have started forgetting? And again, you know, we have this the continuation of the idea of like, every day it's a new discovery, right? That that this is this has got to change at some point. Um, we get this like... Uh, unthinking it feels like that we get a higher note it feels like almost a stab at hope like a frustration um like what where could this I, I every day I keep thinking like when when does this stop and again this is going to be so meaningful when we get to the other version of this song because it could this could be all very charming right every day I'm thinking like when am I going to stop feeling like this oh my god it doesn't end you know that could be so sweet to say to someone like it, it just gets bigger um, or it doesn't go away. It, it keeps happening. Um, but we're starting also to get that sense of like, now, now this isn't a joyous discovery. Now she's starting to be kind of battered down by it. She's wondered this a thousand times the same day, same way. But I just go on thinking and sweating and cursing and crying and turning and reaching and waking and dying. Okay, so that's kind of a bigger chunk than I maybe should have attempted, but it's just the heart of it to such a degree. It's, you know, we get this like resigned, like I keep thinking, when does it end? Which kind of feels like she's in charge of telling the story. Um, and then we get this portrait of what it is to be going through this. She goes, she gets into it. She loses the ability to simply be telling, you know, the story from 
a remove a little bit. You know, I think about this. I I do this. It's like now she's reliving it actively and we are living it with us and it's not pretty. Thinking and sweating and cursing and crying and turning and reaching and waking and dying. It's just this like, we can hear the repetitiveness of it, right? It's just cycling through these things. Um, and I love that there's all of these ands because you really, it just builds, right? It just, it, you just get the sense of this never ending, right? Um, and all of those words is, are perfect. Thinking, sweating, cursing, crying, turning and reaching. You get this image of her sort of like forgetting that, that, he's not with her anymore and waking up in the morning and, you know, remembering that what is happening and dying. That's the final one. Like after all of these words, which could be kind of just like, not too bad. It's the magnitude of this, right? Going through this, forgetting it's happening, sweating, cursing, being upset and crying and all of these things, like just building to this thing where it's, it's the most painful, even though all of these things are, relatively small it it is the worst collectively and we have gone through this with her and then of course you have this big no which just breaks through it right she's she's pulling herself out of that emotional state of of being trapped within this yet again right um and this big note so it, it ends that kind of cycle she's pulling herself out um but then it gets to this place where it's, she's saying not a day goes by um, with darker music around it. We know now there's no way to mistake this for something potentially good. And for a second, it's the answer to her question, right? Which is so genius. No, she doesn't love him anymore, right? The thing right before this, this song, do you still love me? No. But of course, it's not that simple because the phrase that she sings is no, not a day goes by, not a blessed day. Um, that she doesn't love him, right? So she both doesn't love him anymore and also like, no, not a day goes by that I don't love you, right? So it's it's kind of saying both things at the same time on some level, which is true. She, she hates him. She's so angry. She's so upset at him. He has really betrayed her and broken her heart. And also the problem with her having broken with him having broken her heart is that she still loves him and she can't get it. You know, it's like, it's this endless cycle of like, it's painful because she loves him and she knows that she never will. And now we can hear this emotion that she was keeping under control at the beginning of the song. It's so raw. Um, and then after this, no, we get this blessed day. Blessed is just spice with emotion, right? She's just now she's upset um, and you won't go away. And the stage directions say that she's angry and we're kind of reminded in this moment about what the scene is about. Like she, you won't go away. She wants him to give up and just allow him, her to move on. Um, so we really get that moment here. We, we know how painful this is for her because she's pulled us through it with her. And we know that all she wants is just for him to go away. You know, there's no chance that they're getting back together. So there's hell to pay And until I die I'll die day after day after day after day After day after day after day Till the days go by 
big emotional ending that she so deserves. Sing the torch song, girl. Okay. Um, so after the last section, which is you won't go away, um, because you won't go away, both literally and figuratively, there's hell to pay, right? She is in hell. She is miserable, but also this divorce is messy and awful for everyone. It, it's all terrible. And we get this final spike of emotion in, on until I die, which sounds like a cry of frustration, like a wail of just like exhaustion with all of this rage and exhaustion, right? Until she dies for the rest of her life, she's going to have to do this. Um, she's going to have to go live with this. And then her next line, this endless repetitive, almost droning, like day after day after day after day after day, it just keeps going, keeps going. And we get this, like the orchestrations just give us this, like very kind of contained, dun, 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 hopping back and forth. You know, it's stuck in a cycle as much as it's also like building because you just feel all of this time that she's going to feel like this. Until she actually dies, she will have to experience this emotional torture um, every day, a little death, if you will. Uh, and it really captures how mundane it is for this awful thing to continue forever. It's just like, it feels like Prometheus having his liver ripped out every single day and having to heal and like, no, it's coming the same day too, right? Right. It's the most everyday awful thing. And the fact that it is so everyday makes it worse um, because it's just something she's going to have to live with this like pain that is going to be her constant companion she knows until um the days go by as she says you know until the days go by then they're always going to go by they're just that's what life is she's going to be living with this forever and i'm so glad that she gets this big ending of till the days go by till the days go by and it's it's kind of a brilliant thing too because again this show deals a lot with time a lot with chronology a lot with like moving forward and backwards and and days passing literally right um that's what we're seeing and we are never going to see this character like we're never going to know the end of her story right because what we've seen about her is that she's you know living in texas and and raising her son but this ending of this song kind of gives a capture of what she's going to be doing for the rest of the span of the show, which I, by which I mean the beginning of the show, you know what I mean? Like this is the end of her story in some ways, which is just that Franklin Franklin has really hurt her and she will ever be hurt by this, by what he has done. So the song has completely flipped around. It starts with her basically saying that she will always love him, which is kind of a bittersweet thing, but not necessarily a terrible thing. Um, but by the end of the song, we realize we hear in this music, uh, how terrible that is really like, it's the smallest thing that's, that's a bittersweet thing. And there's some beauty in it. Um, and there was once obviously quite a lot of beauty in it, but she knows that she will love him every day forever. And that is a torture for her. Um, and that is just so devastating for us, even though we don't know this character really. Um, it is worse than if the song had been an angry screed about what a terrible husband he was, because it it tells us so much about her and what her life is going to be and what he has done to her. Um, you know, and because because the song is entirely about her, it actually gives us so much about him. We know how careless he is as a person. Um, 
And we know that he hurts people in a different way than we've seen him hurt people in the scenes thus far. Like we've we've seen um, Franklin Shepard Inc. We've seen the scene with Mary. We know that Frank is tough in many ways to the people around him, but this is a real um, incisive comment about how his sort of like inability to um, take responsibility in some way, I think, uh, can be just devastating to the people who love him. So it's really a gorgeous, gorgeous song. It is a beautiful torch song. I understand why cabaret, cabaret singers always sing it because it's so full of complex emotions. It It is just like a heartbroken, but also like beautiful love song, as messed up as that is. Um, and, you know, A plus to Sondheim for, for writing these songs that make you think, God, love is painful, but very, very human. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with Merrily We Roll Along, both internally and externally. And as we open our fourth season, I mean, no show has embodied more uh, issues internally and externally than Merrily We Roll Along in its uh, storied 40-year history of development, which is truly a 40-year history of development. Um, and I think the grand question, um, and I, you know, in complete transparency, I know where Annika falls down on this. Um, and I know, I think where I fall down on this, but we're going to debate, uh, is this show actually good? We haven't spent a ton of time on the show talking about like notorious flops. We're doing this show for a reason because we think it is of quality and we think it is excellent and deserving of being an A-list classic. And I think the recent revival, like, proves that if there has ever if there needs to be proof i think there are there are a ton of very um i don't even want to say cynical but cynical seems to be the quickest way to describe it that like oh the show will never work and we will keep trying to make it work because we love the score but the show just does not work um and it gets put in that category with like mac and mabel is another one of those that like it you know has been worked on and tried to be fixed and whatever a camelot a little bit in the same vein um but i just I don't think, at least as the current, like, version that this production um, is, but also that, with like, the the Merrily, uh, the Encores production, and there have been other productions that I think have really, quote-unquote, solved the problem or revealed the text to be not a problem. And so I guess, Annika, where do you fall on the is it is it good conversation? Because I... As theater people, I think we all have this, you know, theater people who love Sondheim and musical theater people specifically know this like very intrinsic debate about whether it's actually good or not. But I I just I want to voice for the number of listeners and people who are not. Um, I mean, they're theater lovers, perhaps, but not necessarily like in the weeds with it all the time like we are. I saw the revival with um a friend, friend of the program, John O'Brien. And one of his friends, um, who is not a theater person at all, and I was so curious to know what his friend thought of the show, his friend loved it, thought it was wonderful. And another friend of the program, Grace Hockey, her mother took her mother to see the show, and Margaret loved it, just thought it was phenomenal and was crying and weeping and so emotionally invested. And like, so I do think that there is merit outside of the theatrical world 
to this show. It is not just a show for theater people. And I think this production does such a good job demonstrating that. And I use those two anecdotes as evidence, but there are a lot of anecdotal evidence around that. I bake all that into, do you think the show is actually good? Yeah. I mean, I think the show was extraordinary. And it, I think it's funny because it's hard to know this show without knowing that history, the sort of like, I, I think it merrily carries that baggage with it of like, oh, you know, it's famously problematic. Everyone's tried to fix it. But like, I think if, as you said, like, I think those are good anecdotes because I think if you just went and saw that show now, you would be like, well, what's, what's the problem here? Like, what's, what's supposed to not work? Like, do I have notes? Yes, of course. I always have notes, but we've, you know, done how many shows on this podcast. And I sure, think right. what we've learned is like, even the the greatest classics have things that are slightly wonky about them. So um, are there things that don't work within the show? Yeah, sure. And I think also what you said earlier is very apt, which is like 40 years of development. I think this show has more actively over the course of its existence been in development. And if you, and it's hard for me to think of another show that for, for which that is true, that like every production has changed it a bit. And I do feel like it's actually sort of like one of the largest dramaturgical experiments of musical theater in that like, where it is now is as a result of many, many people's notes and thoughts and feelings um, over the course of these these various productions that that made various cuts that you know added various things added various things back. Um, so I think it's kind of ultimately a triumph of the tenacity of theater people in some way and in some way, I mean, I don't want to get into the sort of like, you know, shows being frozen and not being allowed to be worked on. Cause I think this is kind of a special case, but like, you know, this was a show that didn't work. And it's funny because like when I was prepping for this podcast, I, I looked at uh, a script that we have in the archives of signature theater. And it is a script from, it is a script of this show from 1981 um from uh the first date on it is uh march 25th 1981 which is several months before it opened and then there's revisions in uh, may of that year but i read this and i was like oh this show didn't work <laughs> like you know like it was it was such a good thing to read because when i've you know heard about this um like I, some I'm part of me was just like, why does everyone have this problem with the show? It's a great show. But like reading the script, I was like, oh, I can see why I can see what everybody was talking about, about what all of these problems were with this production and and why it had this reputation. And it was funny because I asked my dad last night, you know, did you see the original production, which, you know, as you said, had only a few production uh, performances. And he said, yeah. And I was like, tell me. And he was like, I saw a a preview of it and he said first of all he said the, the audience was hostile that he's mm -hmm. like rarely been in, in a theater full of hostile audience members in the same way but he said also like it was a mess and reading the script it's like i i understood why all of a sudden they needed like 
shirts with characters because like you didn't know who any of the characters were a lot of the language clearly i think has come from the heart the kaufman heart it felt like a bad adaptation because you were a little bit like wait what is happening like who are these people what are they talking about like the clarity was so low um that it really made me see why people would have been like well that's that's a flop from these people these lofty-minded people with their concepts that have man made this complete mess of a thing my dad also felt very much the original production that casting the young people really did not work well um, and i think there's something to be said that like so much of the time interrupting you but so much no, no, of that initial like the initial take from how one you've got like titans who yeah. everyone expects it's partly an expectations game that you they've come off of what is arguably their greatest artistic and uh commercial success in Sweeney Todd it, in terms of the marriage of that Venn diagram arguably the most successful collaboration between the two of them um and so the expectation is so high um and then because it is such a mess and frankly I think Hal's concept was just wrong and like, yeah. and even going back and watching Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened, which is a documentary that Lonnie Price, who was the original Charlie and now a director in his own right and very successful, made. And it's a wonderful, I talked about it and putting it together. But like, you know, from the get-go, they were like, they did like this little reading with all the young people like, oh, this concept works. It's working. Like we, it's gonna, this is gonna be great. Like it was saving the show that the kids were doing it by, and like, Sondheim's quote is saying like by scene four you forget that they're kids and I'm like at the time like uh, saying by scene four you forget the kids I'm like yeah but there are three scenes before that (laughs) like like, wait mister like but there are three scenes before that so I that's all to say like I yes agreeing with everything you're saying keep keep saying what what you're well no that's I mean that's kind of like I yeah no I, I I think that is all to say I think it's I think it's good I think it works I think my, cause my, to take the opposite point of view, it, by playing the end first, the piece lacks a certain amount of tension, right? Like there is a, like, we know where this is going to end. So we're curious how we got there, but it's not like the end that we're starting with is like, so satisfying. Like, it's not like, oh, a satisfying conclusion or something that is like, even that horribly dramatic. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't like in some ways it is not so happy that it is like it's or not it's not so happy that we want to know how we got there or so dramatic that we don't understand like and we want to unpack it like it's Uh exists in this weird like middle space for me and like yeah like drama that lacks tension if if we accept that as a premise that is a problem like in some ways I wish it that first scene were even more dramatic or like the whole like Mary and Mary and Franklin like conflict were even more big. Um, and I'm going to use a very contemporary reference that will be dated um, by the time this episode's even like published, let alone if someone digs it up in the future. But we literally were recording this on January 5th of 2024 and I guess Wednesday night, I am not a Real Housewives person. And shocking that I'm bringing the Real Housewives into a discussion of merrily we roll along. But (laughs) some astute literary references here. But there's all this drama that happened on Salt Lake City about, like, this entire season of television, like, 
was actually this build up to this huge reveal that nobody knew about that one of the housewives was like infiltrated and was like bullying them through this like fake account. And it was like this huge dramatic finale. I do not watch the housewives, but everyone was talking about it and these clips were being shared. And I was like, oh my God, what drama, what amazing drama. I have to go back and unpack how we got here. Like I want to go on this journey now too. I say that to say, if that existed at the beginning of Merrily, would we have a little bit more buy-in as the show continues? And I and the question, I think, this revival does such a good job, especially with those three central performances of like three incredibly lovable human beings who then bring that lovability and um, chemistry to the roles that are often, you know, problematic and or unliked or complained about as unliked. Are, are we trading in that to make the show work? It, it, like, without those three central performances, do we have the same feelings about the production? And so well, the, this all goes to tension, but, like, that's that's the the opposite point of view that I would take. Yeah, no, and that's a good point. I mean, you do make a good point, which is that there is something that you are fundamentally... There is something deadly in drama that has that sort of, like, well, five things will happen, and then you're like inevitably you're kind of think like watching your clock to be like there's the first there's the second there's the third there's the fourth um so that is an interesting and good point i mean i think what i would say is and to your second point um this is not a show that is actor proof like i think right. we have talked yeah. about shows that are i mean obviously every show benefits from amazing actors but there are shows where it doesn't really matter if you have you know kids from your camp um doing like guys and dolls is kind of an actor proof show where it's like yeah. that show will be fun for the audience no matter the skill level of the of the actors um i think there is something about the enormity of scale on this show like it, it covers so much you do need actors who bring uh things to it that can fill in some of the gaps that i think are a little bit missing in the script um and you need a smart director who knows how to pull out the very, like there are, there are little tiny anchors dropped in all of these scenes that you have to hit. The audience has to hear. Um, but if you miss them, you are in trouble because audiences will miss a lot of things that will pay off later. So, so I think the degree of difficulty with this show is high in that way. And you make a very good point that like, yes, this revival I think is, is, partially so successful because you have three actors who are all bringing shadings and of a, a lived history to it that is giving you stuff about those characters that you don't necessarily have if you're just looking at the script alone or that that can be easily overlooked if you're looking at the script alone um but as to the the tension question i mean for me i think it's a sort of like it's a slightly different uh, thing it's 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 funny because it's actually sort of for me more of a more of a play thing than a musical thing usually which is like the the joy in watching um the tiny details of these lot this life kind of play out I mean it's funny I, I think of death of a salesman because I I feel like that is another piece where it's like I mean obviously it's a very different piece but like the title tells you where we are headed the the script gives you 
all of the pieces that make that up, you know? And I think this is kind of a similar, it's like the tension is in the puzzle pieces falling into place, you know? Where you have to buy into caring about those characters because then you're not going to care. Like if you don't like if you're not interested in those characters, then that's that's the whole thing. But like, there is something that just like breaks your heart apart over the course of the show when you when you watch these little tiny moments, you know. And then like, you debate them after. I mean, I after I saw the the revival the most recent time, like, you know, this the scene that's in the sort of like early on quote unquote. It's late in the early in the chronology, late in the show, um, when it's their opening night and Mary says to Beth, like, don't leave Frank with Gussie. Mm -hmm. And Beth says, I don't want to be with someone that I can't trust. Um, And it's like, there are so many lines like that, ultimately, that like, can mean a world of things. Like, because on the one hand, you're like, no, don't leave him with her. You know, like, Beth, stay, like, don't, don't let this happen. Like Gussie's going to get the, her claws in him and like that this is happening. But on the other hand, it's like, well, she makes a point, you know, like she doesn't ultimately want to be with Franklin because she can't trust him with Gussie as the scene will prove, you know, like there's so much interesting shading there and to watch those things that you already know how they've ended. Um, like, I don't know. There, there's the thing that I think of in terms of like what you want from the ending of a show is surprising, but inevitable. And I feel like this whole show is kind of like an illustration of surprising but inevitable because you do, like, it is inevitable. You do know where it's going. But it also, there is something about, if it hooks you correctly, um, and that's due to, you know, partially to the actors and the director, certainly, but, like, it's still surprising, you know, seeing those moments or, like, when Franklin, when Frank... Oh, now, I mean, we said we were not going to just talk about how good this production is, but now well, we're just doing but it. it's but it's it's good because it's solving so many things about the show, right? Well, like, it, that's, yeah. it, it's doing a lot of lifts and and smart highlights. Like, I, you know, yeah. I even like when I mean the fine. I think it's in the final. It's in the final scene. It's in the final scene um, because they're on the rooftop and they're meeting, and like it's so clear that like Mary thinks that Frank is so cute. And yeah. she's like complimenting his piano playing, and he goes, "Oh, Charlie, I think I just found the girl I should marry." Yeah. Like, oh my god. And the audience, the audience, the, heart. the audience, literally, like there was like there was an audible like, uh, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, like of course, like she spent her entire life pining yeah. after him because, like, in that one moment, it was like that was the most she felt like, yeah, being in love. Like, oh my god, like of course she's now like, and yeah. just how painful that is, like my god so like there are things about it yeah like smart direction that underline things underlines it like but and you're right also that there are plenty of shows that we could also accuse of lacking tension like 1776 we know yes famous we know they're gonna sign the document um titanic we know the ship is gonna sink like there are certain things but we're not actually watching it in yeah order so like i that's why like i feel like if if i were gonna like have my wish like I need something like much more dramatic to be happening in that yes. with that Frank, like beyond just like her falling and spilling her drink and being a bit of an alcoholic, like mm-hmm. something more like I kind of want, I, I feel like there needs to be something more. That's like, we got to unpack that or we got to know how we got to this because this is, you know, Oh my God. And like, I, you know, that's, I, I guess that's my like major note, but, or just major thought even yeah. though it's not even something that I necessarily like 
I, in this production, become invested because of the specificity of the performances and the, like I'm, I'm bought in because, because of other factors. Yeah. And so, but, and, and to the anecdotal evidence, it seems like other people are buying in too. So yeah. maybe it's an, you know, maybe it's solved that it's a non-issue, but if we want to make the show actor proof, perhaps that's yeah. like the area to attack. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think, I think we're kind of like both correct on a lot of levels because in this conversation that we are having, it makes me think of like that, you know, that line that you said, which does just, is just a dagger in your heart. And because I think you watch the show and you think, oh, you should do that. You shouldn't do that. You should do that. You shouldn't do that. You know, because you know, the ending, um, and that's a special place for an audience to be, to feel like you are invested enough to, to want to scream to the character, like you should marry her, you right, know, right, right. Or like, <laughs> you know, or like the, the other line that like really, and, and this is again, like a good direction, threading the needle thing, Franklin's line in, in the first scene where he says, you know, my mistake is that I've said yes when I should have said no. And I've, I've done that too many times. I think that's in the first scene. Um, and I've done that too many times. And then you, the whole show is him saying yes when he should have said no. Like in some ways, if you wanted to like say one driving force for that character, like he says it, he says mm -hmm. what I, it's like, I sometimes call those nugget lines where it's like, that is his nugget line. Like even when he's marrying Beth and, you know, and she says like, would you, do you want to marry me even though there's no baby? And he's like, yes, you know? And you're like, no, you should say no. Like, you don't want this actually. Like you can see that he's kind of, this is not the right choice for him. And like he said, yes. And he should have said no. And it's like, you know, this, mm -hmm. the, when you're having that level of um, awareness of a show, it's just a sign of a good, um, certainly a good production. So anyway, that that is to say, yes, it, you're right. That's something that is not actor proof and not director proof it is definitely like a different category of thing. Um, but man, it's so effective. So I, it brings me to another question. A lot, obviously, a lot of a lot of productions have have tampered with the show, tampered with the show, tinkered with the show. Um, tampered is probably not the right word. Tinkered, messed around with whatnot. I'm not sure that there has ever been a production that has gone in chronological order and like completely reversed it. Um, and I, I don't know that I would advocate for that. I don't think that the show is really. I don't talk about like taking out some tension. I think. Um, or then just an unsatisfying conclusion, probably. Um, but I guess my my question for you on the chronology is like, uh, do you feel like there is merit to, in the world where you could, you know, do whatever you wanted with a property, making it completely non-linear and not going backwards, but not going forwards, but like doing a little bit of, oh, in this year, it was this. And like, is there a different way to lay out, I'm going to say like the Easter egg hunt or the adventure, maybe in a way that you think might actually either solve some of those tension issues or be even more engaging for an audience? Um, my gut is no on that because I think, you know, there's a lot of storytelling to get across in the show. And maybe I'm just also like bearing the weight of having read that very early draft, which was so confusing yeah um and it was very hard to track who people were and like what their relationships were and so i i think that might be an interesting exercise like i i think um 
I think putting it in chronological order and reading it that way is certainly an interesting exercise. If you are going to be working on the show, I think you would learn lots of things just in that doing that as an exercise. And yeah, I, I mean, I know like people have asked to do it that way. I think they would sort of like in some ways ruin the drama of the show um, if you actually did it as a production. So shifting it all around, I feel like for me wouldn't really do what I think the show does for me, which is kind of like uh, show you like, as we said, the, the path of these people's lives and the idea that this decision puts changes, you know, puts you over here and that puts you over there and that puts you over here. And like, there's something that I would say that whether that line is going to go this way or backwards, it's it's a line. And I think you have to have a line. And so it would be hard, I think, to to connect. You'd really have to connect those scenes in a way that would make sense, which might, you know, I don't know. I haven't tried it. So maybe there would be a way to do it where you were like highlighting something else about the show. Because this is, as we've said, a rich text. And there's, I'm sure that, I hope that in my life, I see a different production in Merrily that like feels like it's saying something else about what's in here. Um, you know, where it doesn't feel like necessarily it's about uh, uh, all of these decisions that are made by all of these people. Um, in the same way that like some people who have seen this production, this recent production versus other productions have said like, well, this one is a lot more about Franklin. P past ones have felt like it's much more about the trio of them or that Franklin is not a mon Like, it's funny. I remember reading two reviews of this production that were like, one of them was like, Franklin is a monster. And the other one was like, Franklin is in this one, like not a monster at all. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. Like mm -hmm. we we're not all getting the same story from even this production that everybody likes. Um, so I think, I think my answer to your question is that doesn't seem like something that would be uh, revelatory to me, but ha but I do say that I think your question reveals how malleable, how rich this text is, how rich this show is, and how many things are in there. And I think with a show like that, people will continue to find um nuances and storytelling messages and themes that other people don't see in the same way. And I think that is one of the great joys of this show. Like, cause I'm, as, as I'm sitting there thinking about it, cause I, it's one of those like questions I've always had that I've never really spent extended time thinking about it, but it's always been like in the back of my mind, like, well, what if, like, what if there is a way? And like, as I was, you were chatting about it and thinking about it, I was like, well, I don't know that I love the idea, but I am interested in like, even if you like, and I hate to make it like, oh, my and sounding like my entire problem with the show is the first scene, which is not the truth. Um, but like if you were to start and the, the first scene of the show is Franklin Shepard Inc. is the TV interview and you see this like guy melt down on national television because he's lost his friend and that I get an emotional investment in that. I'm like, wait, so how wait, what's going What happened? What? And like. If almost like even if Mary had a version of Franklin Shepard Inc. that happened in that first scene in front of everybody, like I don't know. I just it's interesting that like that well, seems to be what I'm gravitating toward at least is is you know yeah 
Because Frank Herbert Inc. is such no, it's just such a good and tour de force like thing that I it it works so well, I think, as a piece. And um I would say, I don't want to say it's actor proof, but it is so well written that yeah. like I do, I'm a little bit uh of the Shakespearean argument that like if you get the words out and in the right order, you'll win. Like you'll get mm-hmm, what you mm-hmm. want. Like it is kind of one of those, I think. Um, even more so than Ladies Who Lunch, if we if we accept your your <laughs> parallel. Um so I I I wonder because like old friends like does so much like as a song to make you love the three of them. Like there are these like nuggets of of things yeah. that like I just wonder if arranged because like now you know is such a great act one finale. Like there are certain things and temples, like I, I don't know how you don't end with our time, but there are these like different things like, well, if you just repositioned, maybe there yeah. might be something revealed. Well, in- mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. Go no, ahead. no, no. It's that's really the end of the thought. Like I because I, I could shoot from the hip and say like, oh, well, if you moved opening doors somewhere in act one and you moved old friends maybe toward the end or like if you just like repositioned a couple things would it be revealing in a way that like makes the show flow mm-hmm. in a way that feels a so, little bit more treasure trophy? I'm just not sure. I really do not know. Well, it's just things I've always thought about. It's funny because I feel like what you're doing is pulling from follies a little bit where you are like, it feels like you're a little bit like yearning to have the like older versions and the younger versions more actively bumping up against each other, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're seeing you're seeing the contrast a little bit more actively than Marilee shows you. Um, and it's interesting that you say that about Mary because I feel like in previous versions that I've seen, that first scene does feel a lot more the end for her. It feels mm-hmm. like when she like leaves and she says the thing about like these people are horrible and you deserve them, it it is a lot more of a punctuation of like, this is the end of their friendship. But I, I didn't feel that as much in this production. Um, so I think that's an interesting note. And I, and it's interesting to me too, that like uh, your, your kind of lack of satisfaction with that first scene as being like enough. I, it, there used to be, um, as you said, like a whole other beginning to this show, which is the yeah. the graduation idea where it was a little bit more actively like, let's look back at your life um, for Franklin. And, and obviously that's gone from the show, um, which is, I think a good thing, but um, even this production has a sort of solo moment with Franklin and the script of the show that makes an appearance in the last scene too. So it's like, I think you are not alone in feeling that, there needs to be some larger overarching frame frame before you just dive into that party to to feel the sort of spine and the the drive of it a little bit more um so i I, you know yeah i think that's legit so yeah so let's let's dive into the gussie of it all what's what's your issue with gussie other than she's a tramp um i'm sorry well well, but like (laughs) And that is a, my problem with Gussie. She's like underwritten. She's like underwritten and without someone like, I'm going to say Elizabeth Stanley, who like brings so much to the table. I'm yeah. like, I just don't really know what's going on here. I don't like her. And I see no depth there. I, I mean, that is my problem with her. I, I mean, and this is like, this is my like little dream. I just feel like she's such a kind of like shallow witch in the show. And and I just, but I feel like, and and also like 
takes up a lot of space and time yes. when you're yes. like, we get it. My God, like, can we spend this time like on these other characters? Like with, on. in the party org. scene. Moveon.org, yeah. yes. But I, I, what I would love to see from that character is um, someone who actually kind of says to Frank, like, I see what you want and I want it to. Like, if she is ambitious in a way that Frank is also ambitious, that Charlie and Mary are not ambitious. And so what we see in, we can see in her what Frank sees in her, which is like someone who says to him, like, I can offer you this life, which is like almost what that character is a tiny, tiny scooch, like in the scene with the with the party at the beginning, like when they go into the greenhouse and have that sort of like too long scene about like, I'm, I'm unhappy. And I, you know, mm-hmm. like, but I, I kind of wish there was that she didn't just represent the kind of like shallowness of Hollywood and success. And like, she's a star and she wanted to be a star and here she is. But like, she was a character who knew what she wanted, knew how to get it. And was able to say to Frank, like, I can see that you can do this too. I see that you want this and we could do this together. Like basically what I, what I would be interested to see in that character, not to be prescriptive, but like, you know, the scene from Evita with, with the, I'd be surprisingly Mm -hmm. good for you scene, like two people who are drawn together because they want the same thing is so much more interesting to me because that is a part of Frank, you know? And I think the danger in the script now with Gussie being this sort of like tempteress is that it, it, there's a world in which like, yes, he makes a bunch of bad choices to get him where he goes, but like there is something that like is a little bit like she just gets her claws in him and she takes him from his noble friends. And I'm like, that is boring to me because you know like it feels it feels also like it turns into a a hollywood versus new york conversation like which has always been one of my other like things is like this feels like a response to like someone went to hollywood and didn't like it and decided that new york was real and better and yeah i agree with that assessment but (laughs) (laughs) famously i've never been to hollywood but like (laughs) i you know so i i agree that like it is one-dimensional and i wonder like if it weren't one more, if it weren't one dimensional, do we actually like, do we sympathize with Franklin more? And is that like help again with the, like what I'm talking about with like a lack of tension that like, okay, but he clearly is ambitious yeah, and not, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And like, it led him to made, make bad choices. Right. But it, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And mm-hmm. can we live in that gray a little bit more? Yeah. And like, also, we understand some of those choices, what he's going for. It's not just like, oh, how can I turn down this, like, hot star who wants to be with me? It's a little bit like, oh, you know what? Like, my friends are telling me to do this. I want this, you know? I want the the money and the boats and, like, th- that that there is something about him that doesn't fit with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it would be also interesting to see, like, those three women as the three women in the show, like, Beth and Mary and Gussie, like, you know, I don't know. I, like, obviously there's a, 
ambitious women characters are something that art has had trouble dealing with a lot of times. Yeah, sure. You know, because it's like, I feel like they do tend to immediately go to the like, you know, and, and I'm not saying that these are not amazing characters, but like it very quickly becomes Lady Macbeth. It very quickly becomes Mama Rose. It very quickly becomes like, not, not that, and then again, those are very amazing characters, but like there's something about it that like becomes a sort of like, well, no, this is a bad comparison because it, I wish Gussie were like those characters. Like I wish you, that's what I wish Gussie had a little bit more of the sense of just like, I am ambitious and that is okay. You know, as opposed to right. like, she's a little bit of a joke in terms of like, oh, she's the secretary, you know, right. she's Joe's right. secretary pushing the chair, like, you know, it's like, I don't need that. I, what I want is like, why, why Frank? Like, what is it that like, what, that's, that's what I want a little bit instead of just, and I also like, I don't know. I always think it's funny when there's musicals inside musicals and they don't look at all like any musical you've ever seen. And oh, I'm like, yeah, of you were writing a musical. Anyway, that's a side of thing. But not. um, yeah, so that's my gussy issue. I just wish if we're gonna spend that much time in a show where time is a precious, precious commodity, I would love that character to feel less like a cartoon, a villainous cartoon, and more like she represents a choice that Franklin is making towards something he actually wants. A compelling alternative. As a compelling alternative. Yes. A sloot who wants <laughs> who yeah. wants to fuck. Yeah. I'm just getting very crass in this uh in this yeah. uh this well, this one. But here we are. Here we are. Yeah. So that'll bring us to one of our favorite segments, our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Merrily Roo Along. So who uh in the as we discussed, the plethora of characters. Uh, in Merrily We're Wrong, who is your favorite? Gussie. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got to give it to Mary. I mean, it just breaks my heart every time. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Charlie. Yeah, um, but like I, it was Charlie or Mary for me. Um, and I, you know, I think I, I don't want this podcast to just become a fangirl of the current production that not everyone will get to see. But if you can see it, go see it. I think also just to shout out, Lindsay Mendez gives such a wonderful three-dimensional specific performance as Mary, I think that like brings so like ups her lovability for me even like more so. Yeah. Um, but I'm I just think Charlie is such a ultimately like good guy who wants what's best for his friend and is like the victim of so much circumstance. And so I love Charlie. Yeah. I know they're both great characters both and it's great. funny because I, I think they are both a scooch underwritten and yet they both, you can see their flaws as much as you can see their, like, you know, yeah. Charlie is rigid in a way where you're like, okay, I can see why this friendship is not, the end of this friendship is not only Frank's fault and Mary also like you, there's, there's something about her that is as warm hearted as she is and the glue that keeps these guys together. Like part of you is like, get your shit together and like get over him and you know get like yeah oh my god she just like keeps value yourself value yes. yourself yes. like you know not to be Mika, not to be Mika on morning joe know your value yeah know your value um yeah it's true so what's your favorite song in what is some people's favorite song time score um and i highly recommend going to listen to it. i'll get to that in a second but what's your favorite song in the score i ugh, i was really torn between two um, I wrote down four, <laughs> so I get it. 
I bet we have the same too. It probably would be maybe. the same for maybe. maybe. Um, uh, oh, now I'm torn. I'm like game time, game time. Okay, okay, game time. <laughs> um, I am gonna give it to Opening Doors. Oh my god, I even forgot about Opening Doors. Oh my, oh my god, god that's what I want to be for. It's not even on my floor, and I love opening doors. Oh my god! Okay, wow. Okay, talk about talk about opening doors. We haven't spent any time talking about opening doors, and it's a great number. I love it's, it. It just it does so much, um, and I think the energy of it is so wonderful. I think the the charm of wrapping each of their like the typewriter and the piano in there, and the phone ringing, and like the jokes that are in there, and how like. It's yes. just, I, I feel like it's, it, it isn't like, obviously everyone loves it, but like, I, I don't think it's given the credit that it deserves as like, that is a monumental piece of musical theater storytelling in that yeah, song. There's true. so much that you learn from it. And it, and in such a kind of like at a time, I mean, it is technically sort of the 11 o'clock number, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's like, it, it's at a time where you're feeling a little bit like, okay, you know, like, cause I feel like even in the best productions, I'm always, I always get to the the club scene in Bobby and Jackie and Jack, which um, it, is you tough. Know, is tough. tough. Although, yeah, I will I will say that I think this production also I like I've never loved that number more than I did in this revival. Yeah, they deal with it well, but that, but that's the point where I'm like, okay, yeah. we all know where this is going. Like, yeah, let's yeah, keep yeah. it moving. Let's keep it moving. Um, so the fact that like opening doors just gets you like doesn't it doesn't take away from our time and the emotions of that but it also like really beautifully captures that sort of energy you have when you're like doing the thing and trying the thing and making your life and you know and I think you you know, I mean it's funny you said you were going to cry on this episode and, and my my reaction to that is like every like I think Sondheim's work singularly accompanies you through your life um in in different ways and there has been a show of his that that at almost every stage of my life, it's hard for me to watch for various reasons. Like when I was a teenager, Into the Woods was tough because I was like, I don't want to be told that fairy tales don't come true right now. Like becoming, going from a child to an adult, like that was not what I wanted to hear. And this show was very tough for me when I was in college and in my early 20s because it felt like it was such a portrait of where I was and where I was potentially going that I was like, I don't want this right now. I don't want this. Um, which means that it just like resonates in such a real way and feels so true. So anyway, that's a lot of talk to say. Uh, opening, opening doors, doors edges out Franklin Shepard Inc. as the winner. Yeah, so Franklin Franklin Shepard Inc. I cannot believe that Opening Doors didn't even make my. I can't even believe that. Yeah, no, you have to give your full it. four. So well, and then uh, there's another song that I love deeply that also didn't make it, but I that was a little bit more like intentional, just because like well. Uh, so uh, Franklin Shepard Inc. of course made the list because it's yeah. a tour de force and great and it's still the telephone's blink at the buzzer buzz and I also God if I were ever to be on stage again I'm like ooh that would be fun I know um, right like what would be so fun um, not a day goes by stands out simply because what a sing what a great ballad that like out of context is beautiful you've probably heard it even if you haven't heard the show like really really great renditions by many artists but. It's really hard for me to not say that old friends, I love old friends. Yeah. It is like, ultimately, like it is such a wonderful endearment of friendship or a embodiment of friendship to me and old friends 
and that like just bonds that you have with certain people. And I, I'm very blessed to have a lot of friends that I have had for a long time um, between college and high school and elementary school. I was catching up with um, friends that I've known since I was like three years old. And I was like, oh my God, we've known each other for 30 years. And here we are like grabbing drinks. Like we're still friends and we just know things about it. Like we l- have lived life to, you know, like there, there's something about that, that that song I think just wonderfully embodies. So I, so old friends, I, I think wins. Um, but the second, the sleeper for me that I want to like uplift, cause I don't think people talk about it. I love now, you know, now you know is so good it's such a good song and the and the the word play that exists and now you know that is like surreptitious um and not like it, it really comes in under but it is such a great like it is such a great number and nobody talks about it and i i i love it I love that song. Now I'm like, oh, <laughs> I didn't even think of that one. I mean, like there it's it's a it's a score. It's a score bops. Yeah, and, but, maybe not bops, but just like really solid, solid pieces of musical theater. Yeah. And also like what a, what a wonderful and unexpected sentiment to have in a song. The kind of like, yeah, that sucked. That really sucked. And now you've gone through it. And now, you know, I mean, like it's. And it's you still so got us. Smart. Like it yeah. really is. It is, and it's the way the orchestra. Like, well, we'll get to orchestration saying, but like the way the music swells, the way that, like, yeah, I just, it's so good. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. So, what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about "Merrily We Roll Along"? You know, I mean, there's so many things, but the one that I'm going to give it to is the joke and the reveal that is such an unexpected and delightful thing when in the last scene uh mary's roommate runs on for that like two seconds and it's evelyn like after (laughs) after hearing about that character and never meeting her for the entirety of the show um obviously is like charlie's wife who's having 11 children in the background um it is such a joy and a funny moment in a scene that you know is going to be full of like heavy emotions and feelings that I mean I just I just find it so delightful and so funny and I think I mean every time I've seen the show that gets a huge laugh because I think you you really aren't expecting it I mean you just kind of feel like she's going to be the and you don't need to see her ever I mean like whatever you know um I just, I love that. And I think it's perfectly placed at a time that you need a little bit, like I, you need the release of a laugh in that moment. Um, and it, I just love it. I think it's a great addition. But also, what about important, you? But I was gonna say, but it's also important that like a director makes sure that her name is highlighted enough in the other scenes that you're not like, yeah. wait, who's Evelyn? Like, yeah. And that she doesn't get lost in the mix that like, oh, there is this character that we've never met in all of this and it's Evelyn. And then in the last moment, it's, yeah, it's, I agree completely. Yeah. And kind of an interesting side note too, that like this person who is so much a part of their lives is also like Mary's friend, you know, that like in some ways there's like a fourth person um, to this trio. And also there's something like heartbreaking about the idea too, that like, you know, that's such a that's such a trope about like the two guys and the two ladies and like one of the guys is going to end up with one of those ladies and like mary and yeah. frank are the couple remaining and that's going to be the the sort of like 
not thing that never happens that kind of haunts this entire show and like in some ways you know i think if you saw that show in chronological order you would think oh of course and like this this whole show is going to be about these two characters getting together yeah um, and it isn't sad r.i.p so my favorite miscellaneous thing i have to say i really love and treasure the encores cast recording of merrily we rule along i think oh. it is i think it is um absolutely like it, it and i say that because it was the it's the first time that i listened to a sondheim show from beginning to end and i loved the entire thing from the first time i heard it like every other sondheim show there was one and we might have talked about this when we talked about into the woods or little night music or whatnot but um every time that i've fallen in love every single sondheim show actually to every single show there is one song that I really love, that I listen to over and over and over again. And I don't really care about the rest of the show. And, or at least like when I got to know them originally in my youth and childhood, um, I like, there's one song that I love and I'm obsessed with. And I listen to over and over and over and over and over again. And then slowly I get to know the rest of the score. Yeah. I'm like, oh, the rest of it's brilliant too. But there's like one thing that like latches that I'd like latch my teeth into from the first notes of that encore's recording overture with a, a different orchestration, which I also think is like the one of the best orchestrations. And I wish everyone would use that orchestration and not the like 80s synth thing yeah. that like, will frankly make it hard for me to listen to the current cast recording. But it does not sound like that in the Hudson. It doesn't sound 80s synth in the Hudson. It sounds great. But on the recording, I'm like, oh, I just hate that 80s synth. I don't like it. But um, that from the opening notes i was like oh my god i love this oh my god i love this and the entire thing through the end i it's the first time that i was like wow i am so taken by this i feel such a world being painted and i see it in front of me and like i love this entire thing and that it is the only sondheim show that i have felt that way about that's great so I highly recommend that cast recording. <laughs> if you want to get to know Merrily, I think it's great performances from Colin Donnell, who is oh, you, wonderful. Lin-Manuel Miranda, Pre Hamilton as Charlie, and uh, Celia Keenan-Bolger. And also Betsy Wolf as Beth, who is incredible. And then Elizabeth Stanley as Gussie. It's like, it is full of really, really... And is Brooks as Mancus too? In it as, is he is Joe? It Brooks, as Joe I'm not sure if it's Brooks or not but uh, truly like stacked stacked company um and they just sound sound incredible sound incredible so I love that and that will bring us to our penultimate segment corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon so outside of, you know, all the things that we've we've talked about, its place is that it is an infamous flop of two of the titans of musical theater. And I think now in its 40-year development history, like we've talked about, um, uh, an un, a somewhat unsung gem that will probably not get produced on a large scale nationally very often, but will remain, like, not unlike She Loves Me, a theater lover's kind of... Uh, in the corner of theater lovers as one of their shows that they hold dear. Um, but I think in the, in the canon, it's places as the, marking the end of the Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim collaboration um, that gave the canon so much. Um, and as, you know, 
arguably the most in, you know infamous flop of all time. But Annika, what would you say is its place? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has to sort of go down in history as the like, in some ways, the greatest comeback. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 it's true. Um, yeah, and also there's a little bit about, I mean, I feel like there's something in its story that is a little bit mirrors what's in it in terms of like, you know, it is like the Hal Prince, um, Stephen Sondheim collaboration kind of ended for a long time with this and like, you know, I don't know, there's part of me that's like, if it were different, what would have happened? What would we have seen? Although I think we know from the show, there's like, things are not different. This is how they are. So Well, and we get something in the park with George and Into the Woods and Assassin. You know, he he goes on to, you know, we 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 get other things. Like Sunday in the Park is absolutely a reaction to yeah. what happened with Marilee. And so like there's a silver line there. It's a wonderful silver line. Yeah. And you're right. Now it's been vindicated. It's a huge come it's a comeback. Yeah. I also there's like something kicking around my head about the sort of the the shows that are about like someone's life um towards success and like because I was thinking about Allegro and how Oscar Hammerstein mm. Uh, and Richard Rogers tried their version of this, I think, is the sort of like uh, the experimental piece about a man losing his way um, and losing track of what is important is Allegro, which also was famously a flop. And I was like, God, I guess there's something about that that I- idea that just fundamentally doesn't really lend itself as much to musicals as people think it will originally, although I think this one's come around, but. So there's a tiny touch of that, but I don't know. I don't. That's not a fully formed thought. That's just a. Isn't that interesting? That will wrap up our deep dive into Marilyn. We roll along, but before we go, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Annika, what is our clue about the next show we'll be getting to know? Well, the clue for the next show is that a revival of this show featured stars named Effie, Dina, and Laurel, and you might be thinking. That is the most obvious clue I've ever given. But in this case, they were chickens. We've, I was going to say, wow. Okay. I was, like, I was like, we've already, I was like, we already did Dream Girls. And famously, we just did Dream Girls at Good Speed. Um, but I was like, oh, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't know that I, I mean, the chickens perhaps get yeah. you on the right road. Um, they are chickens. And they shared a coop with uh, another star named Sparky who was not a chicken, but also not a human. And, uh, you know, we're not doing honk. That's all no. I'll say. We're not no. doing... I'll give it... Sparky was a goat. That's another clue. Yeah, there we go. Maybe. Yeah. That so Sparky, gets... Effie, Dina, and Laurel were all That's in the revival. A good time. Honestly, they should have called the goat. They should have renamed the goat um, Curtis, just for fun. Yeah. They should have. <laughs> but what if it was like, no, it it's chicken dream girls. That's the yeah, show we're doing on the podcast. <laughs> I'm we are dream <laughs> I will make you happy. <laughs> I don't know. Is that <laughs> I what is the noise am I making? That's not really that's a, that's goes, a, Yeah, that's a that's a, like okay. a singular that's a single gobble, I think. Yeah. I like chickens do multiples. Um but yes. The chickens and one the, of them the dream gobbles the dream the dream gobbles the dream, the dream gobbles. gobbles yep oh my god i guess they could also just be dream chicks yeah that's better dream chicks that's... honestly get disney on the horn yeah <laughs> who's making that movie 
That's so stupid. Okay. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. It's perfect. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.